Product Management. All right. Hello, everyone. This is yet another episode of uh, Real World Product Management. And I have Erin Wood with me on the call today. Hi, Erin. Hi. Thank you for finding time uh, to uh, be on this episode. Can you please go ahead and introduce yourself? What is it that you do? What is your role? Uh, what do you work? Sure. Um, I am currently employed by Northrop Grumman. I'm contracted into NASA Run Research Center in Cleveland, Ohio. I also report up to our headquarters location. Um, and I am responsible for uh, production planning and scheduling for a variety of projects that are all destined for the International Space Station. That is awesome. Thank you. When I was a kid, I always dreamed to be an astronaut, but unfortunately... Uh, you know, being born in the Soviet Union and not having a perfect eyesight kind of closed it down for me. So, uh, you know, believe it or not, I never planned on working at NASA Glenn Research Center. I grew up in the Cleveland area, so this has always been in my backyard. And I am third generation of women supporting NASA Glenn Research Center, which is kind of unusual. My mother in law. Um, was employed there for 30 years and retired not long before I started. So I have the interesting perspective of seeing what it was like for her as a woman in the 70s and 80s, you know, really getting her feet wet at Master Glenn Research Center. Um, prior to that, unbeknownst to me in my youth, my grandmother's cousin is Annie Glenn um, of Glenn Research Center. So I have, have got to learn a lot about what it was like for her to be a woman supporting NASA Glenn Research Center uh, via her husband, John. And that's also been, you know, an, an interesting glimpse of womanhood from the 50s today. It's been a lot of fun. Okay. That, okay. That is, that is even, uh, is even better. So my, Obvious question here would be, did you, what, what were the differences and what were the similarities, if any, uh, between these generations? Oh, well, I mean, Annie obviously was married to John Glenn, who was one of, uh, you know, the United States' best astronauts, of course, um, and it will always be my favorite for obvious reasons. Um, but, you know, she was more of an, a supportive role. You know, her responsibility was to be, you know, America's trophy wife. Um, and she was really, really good at it. And I have to say, I have her rice pudding recipe and it's the best. Um, you know, what she did was just as important, although, you know, in a totally different capacity than what women at work would do today. Um, my mother-in-law was one of the first ones to kind of venture into the workplace. She worked in document management, or that's what we call it today. Um, so she was in, in more of an administrative role and in more of a secretarial role. And she got to deal with kind of the, the first brunt of women working in, in an engineering environment, in a research environment. Um, and it, it was much different than where I come from today. I have a master's degree in project management specifically. So um, in my position, I, I just have a little bit, I'm taking a little bit more seriously, I think, than she was. Um, I'm more of an equal partner, I think, than, than some of my predecessors were. Although that said, there's some advantages to each. And I think that um, the women of today definitely have something to learn from and admire from every generation that's come before us. Thank you. Wow. Um <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so um, 
tell me a little bit more about what is it, uh, I mean, in within the uh, allowed space, uh, what is it that you're specifically working on and why does uh, NASA need project managers? What is it, uh, what is it there uh, that project managers do? Well, I work in the background of project management, and so what I do is work with either projects who are in the development phase and are are planning out their work and building a schedule, um, as well as projects that already have that defined and are in more of a monitoring and controlling phase of their project life cycle. So I would report up their, their milestones to headquarters. I work with our cost team to correlate between schedule and cost, as well as our risk team to correlate between schedule and risk. So that the three of us are, are kind of an integrated discipline. Um, in addition, from a, from a project planning perspective, I incorporate a lot of lean and Six Sigma techniques in order to um, remove constraints in advance and help things move really smoothly. So this is uh, does this have anything to do with uh, any specific space programs flying space, or is that uh, some kind of uh, internal initiatives that are staying on the ground? Well, specifically for me, I work in in code MSI, which is the physical sciences and human research for experiments going to the International Space Station. I mean, of course, at NASA Glenn Research Center, there's lots of different different programs going on, um, but that's the program that I specifically work on. Okay. All right. So your stuff flies into space. Am I, am I understanding this correctly? Yes. As long as everything goes well, it will fly into space. It will be launched up on a shuttle, taken up to the International Space Station in the form of an experiment. Um, and when it's, it's that experiment's turn, then the astronauts on the International Space Station will perform the experiments and then send all of the data and sometimes the materials and the, the physical experiment itself back down to Earth. As a project manager and you're, this is, so let me step back a little. This is a product management podcast, right? So why do we have a project manager? Uh, the, the reason why we have you here is because A, you work on some, some of the uh, most advanced and most amazing stuff ever. Uh, at NASA, I, I am I'm really amazed at everything uh, that has anything to do with the space. And uh, second reason is because uh, although I am a product manager, I have uh, been a product manager for almost 10 years now, um, I still think product mindset should coexist with project mindset. So every, you know, there's a tool for every job. And to me, it seems like launching shuttle or launching stop on the shuttle into space is probably one of the very most waterfall things ever uh, because once you launch the shuttle, you can't really, uh, you know, recycle, re reiterate and do this, you know, oh, wait, this, this it didn't launch the way we wanted. Let's, let's do this again. It doesn't quite work that way. Uh, so that's why we have you here because uh, I think we should be uh, products, product and project managers. Uh, we should be friends, not, uh, you know, we, we should not... Uh, we should not create a gap between the mindsets. It should, we, should, we should think about how to uh, make it work together. And uh, one of the questions that I had uh, based on um, what I know is it seemed like the shuttle launches are pretty hard deadlines. Like they're dead set in stones. You know, you lose your window, uh, things fly away, you know, weather changes. Uh, are there any reasons? And again, in product management, we are way more flexible with dates. Certain things are hard, uh, hard uh, set hard in stone, 
But in most cases, we're flexible. We can play with the scope. We can play with uh, deliverables. We can play with the deadlines. Uh, what is the situation uh, with you guys uh, at NASA at you know launching things into space? Well, the launches are, are pretty set in stone. Um, the launches are scheduled, and they might fluctuate a little bit to the left or right, depending on atmospheric conditions and and shuttle preparation. However, that shuttle is going to launch when they decide it's going to launch with or without our materials on board. And if our materials don't make it, it's going to launch with a different material. Uh, but it's definitely going with or without us. So if the materials are not provided to the on-dock location with plenty of time to spare, they will not, they will not get on the shuttle. Um, and they always have backup experiments ready to go. So the the experiment with the most priority, as long as it's ready and on dock, it's going to get to launch. Um, but if it's late, the launch goes on and you miss your window and that's just it. If you're lucky and it's a high priority, maybe they'll put you on the next launch, but that's not guaranteed. Oh, wow. So again, this is, this is both similar and different from how in product management you would uh, you would build a roadmap. If you don't make it this release, you can always say, oh, we're going to do it in the next release. It, there's, there's a lot more flexibility. It sounds like each launch in your case has its own queue and uh, of experiments that potentially can get on it. And if you're missing, uh, if you've missed your own window, there's no guarantee you ever get into another queue. Is that? Absolutely. And you have to keep in mind each window has a highly specific amount of, of mass and weight that can get on the shuttle. So in addition to the time constraints, we have to make sure that our material will fit into each individual shuttle. So each shuttle has its own dimensions and weight capacity. And so if your experiment is larger and needs need more space and more weight, then you have to be on a, you know, you have to be on a shuttle that will fit that. And not all shuttles can fit all experiments. So there's, there's some additional considerations and some additional constraints and very little wiggle room. Yeah, well that's, that, that's another argument about project management still not being, uh, not being obsolete. I keep hearing in, in some of the product management um, community that Product management is way better. It should replace project management. This keeps telling me it shouldn't. There, there are different tools for different jobs. Well, I think when people think of project managers, a lot of times they only think about software. A lot of people think about software as the primary use for um, project managers. And I think that's probably a similar thing that you get for product management. Um, however, I am one of the rare ones that have never worked in software. I actually am... I'm terrible with anything IT or software related. It's just not my field of interest. So I come from a background of working in construction project management, um, in manufacturing project management, and now in research project management. So um, it's important to keep in mind that that you know that war might exist within the software community, but not necessarily in all of these other industries. Um, so it, I think it is a lot like what you said. It's the best tool for the best job. And a lot of what we do in far, as far as data analytics is very, very similar. Uh, what do you mean, the, what, what you do in data analytics? Can you elaborate on that a little more? 
Well, um, in, in developing a research project, we're also building a business case. A lot of times we have external partners involved, whether it be other countries or um, businesses that have a financial interest in the data that we're producing. Um, our main stakeholder is the American public. So, you know, everything that we do, we, we answer to the American public as our, as our primary stakeholder. And obviously that's pretty broad broad group there. Um, but we also build a business case. We go through development phases where, you know, we would call it pre-phase A at NASA. So our project life cycle will go through, you know, concept and development and uh, a very high fidelity level of testing, um, primarily safety related, um, long before that product is ever re- project is ever ready to launch. And that's very similar to what you guys do. You build a business case, you have a concept, you go ahead and develop it, and then you would you would market your your product. For us, our product is that data that's coming back from the International Space Station. So that is the product that we're that we're building towards and that we're gathering to provide to the American public. Right. Makes yeah, thank you. That makes sense. Um the only difference would probably be that uh product development, especially in software product development, is way at least the the right way of doing things, is a lot more iterative. So like I said, if we didn't get things into this release or launch in in, in other terms, and sometimes uh, people do call them launches, then we can always hit it the next and the next and the next. We can always reprioritize. Uh, we're, we're a lot more flexible um, in that sense. It does kind of twist me up when you say the word launch because you're talking about a product launch and I'm thinking of an actual space shuttle. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> right. I'll I'll keep I'll keep it to the releases. Uh, but as a matter of fact, no. Let me correct myself. You're right. I I'm not using this term correctly. Uh, we do use the word launch uh, when we launch a major release. Like for example, uh, we had in 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 my experience, we had an idea. We've iterated on it for for a number of uh, months. Uh, we've figured out what we wanted to do, uh, how the product will look in the market. And once we had the product in the market, we actually do the launch. It's a one-time deal. It's, it, you know, you can only do this, you know, so often. And uh, it's when product is presented to the market. It's it's a go-to-market internally, but externally, it's it's a product launch. Uh, we we're now making this product available to the market. So that's that's the that's the proper way of using the term. I apologize. Uh, okay. Um, so from and, and as, as, as I've explained uh, before, uh, my goal on this podcast and, and reason to have different people is to understand not the glorious stories about, hey, we came in, everything started working properly, but talk about the real world challenges. And uh, given that you're not IT and, and most of the folks have been uh, on the uh, show so far are from IT. I, I am perf- I'm uh, particularly very curious to hear what are the challenges, and, and you mentioned some, like missing the window, not being ready. Uh, what are the challenges that uh, you guys are facing uh, when you're executing your projects? What are the challenges, the real-world challenges, not, you know, uh, we came in and everything started working, the stories uh, that um, may get in the way of, of uh, making things happen? 
Sure. Um, I actually look at it, and, and I'm not even going to be as specific as talking about my experiences at NASA, because this is true of my experiences in construction and manufacturing environments as well. Um, as an analyst, one of my responsibilities is, is to do the math that goes between cost, schedule, and risk. Um, and, and some people convert that into earned value management. There's a lot of levels in between in, in terms of integration between those, those metrics and, and lots of different things that you can do to compare one against the other in order to mass them. Um, and so that's my, that's my area of specialization is, is looking at these metrics and finding a way to translate schedule into cost and cost into risk and all of them together. Um, the number one problem that I have found in any industry is that there's there's typically a culture very much against data management. Um, math is is very specific. It's black and white. Um, you look at it and it gives you an answer, and that answer does not care what you think. It doesn't like you or not like you. It's um, it's completely, you know, objective. It. it just has no opinions one way or the other. And in almost every environment where I've worked in, um, there's been a, a culture against that. People just typically do not like that level of accountability. Um, a lot of people, um, project managers would, would rather have the ability to, you know, make decisions based on what they think would happen or what they hope would happen. And when you show them the math, sometimes it, it doesn't necessarily correlate to be the same, the same outcome. The math might say, hey, our current projection shows this is going to be the most likely outcome. Um, teams as a whole, you know, engineers in, in many fields, many industries, including research, are, are brilliant people and they do amazing work, but they're not always known to be the best planners. So they tend to resist a level of planning that, that sets up for data management. They don't always like that because, you know, there's a, there's a high level of accountability, you know, when you're looking at that and it, it's not always a welcome thing. So the biggest struggle that I've had in all of these industries is creating a culture in which there's acceptance towards using data to make decisions um, because people are typically fearful that that data will ultimately be used against them. For example, you know, if they're confident something can be done and they kind of take a leap of faith going against that math and turn out to be wrong, you know, maybe they're afraid they look like a guru in front of their boss or, you know, that, that, that some for some other reason, they just don't want that data being, you know, spread up the pipeline. They're they're afraid that it's going they're gonna be micromanaged by it or they're gonna be held accountable to it. And there's just typically a culture where that's not very acceptable. Wow. <laughs> that is so much different from uh, what I've seen. And okay, let me let me correct that. What I've seen recently. Uh the uh, the data-driven decisions and and data-driven development is one of the core principles of of the product mindset and i I would argue that there's actually a discipline uh within product mindset where uh you're only making decisions based on the data and as a matter of fact uh, if you look at the way uh, google builds things uh, they are very data-driven organization they build their products they make their decisions based on the data and data alone and I actually, I'm actually arguing that it's not the best way of doing things, uh, but because there are certain 
uh, things that data cannot tell you, or you can only make decisions as good as the data you have collected. And granted, um, uh, organizations like Google or Facebook or others collect humongous amounts of data, and so they are, you know, within their right to make those decisions. And and, and those decisions are mostly correct. Uh, but there there's there's an edge case uh, when you don't have enough data to make that decision. Uh, for example, you're, you're debating whether a feature should be developed or not, or you should make certain things happen or not, and you only have you know, two customers, one saying, yes, I want it, and another one saying, no, I don't want it. What would you do? Well, I think the most important thing to do in order to create a culture where data management is, is encouraged, and, and I have to say NASA is by far you know, the greatest level of project management maturity in any organization that I've worked within, and they are by far the most set up in order to be successful in this. So I have, I have full faith that, you know, this is, you know, a, the data is successful at NASA. Um, but the, the greatest way to build that on a team level, when you're working with people that don't traditionally have you know, a high level of project management knowledge. Um, you're working with people who are not project managers or project analysts by trade. Um, you know, the greatest thing that you can do is just keep it simple. You know, sometimes we put such incredible math into the metrics and we develop KPIs that are so complicated that nobody could possibly understand where this information comes from. And that's, I think, one of the greatest things that lead to rejection is that we just overcomplicate it and people don't embrace things that they don't understand. And we don't always need the most complicated math in order to provide the data to make decisions. So by keeping it simple, um, you know, using you know, metrics that you can explain where the numbers come from is the greatest thing that we can do in order to create a culture of acceptance in terms of data analytics, in terms of data-driven decision-making tools. You know, sometimes we just make it too complicated. We put big fancy words around things and they don't mean anything. There's so many different metrics that we can use. You know, Harold Kurtzner is um, somebody that I really admire, probably one of my favorite authors. I know it's kind of dorky that I'm one of those people that have a favorite textbook author, but I do. Um, and, you know, he talks in his, in his books about how, you know, sometimes we overcomplicate the metrics and we have so many different metrics for so many different things that it's just, it's just too much. You know, just to, to keep it down to a handful of simple metrics that people can understand that, you know, you can really communicate openly about is probably the best way to create, you know, a culture in which a team can fully embrace data-driven decision-making tools. That is actually very true. And one of the things, one of the first things that I learned about how to talk to executive suite uh, when I was uh, just starting in product management is don't bring your um, whole analytics report. Bring me a couple of KPIs that the C-level would understand, uh, major stakeholders would understand. They don't want to, to look at your Excel spreadsheet. If they want Excel spreadsheet, they will ask you for it. But if you, when you come into the meeting, bring in top three KPIs that you care about, that they care about. And as a matter of fact, one of the things that... Um, uh, one of the approaches in product mindset and product management is one metric that matters. So you're not tracking a number of KPIs, you're only tracking one. For example, 
if you're developing an app, your product is an app uh, on mobile phones, then you can safely say, hey, my one metric that matters is adoption. How many users I have on the app? I don't really care about anything else. I don't care how long it takes for a signal to travel back and forth from uh, app to the server and back. How What's the response time? Uh, how long it takes to transition from one screen to another? I don't care. All I care about is how many users are using this. Because ultimately, that is my uh, KPI for uh, usability, right? If, if the app is not usable, my adoption will drop. If my, uh, if my app is slow, my adoption will drop. If something is wrong, if there's, uh, there are any issues, my, my adoption will drop. So that's one metric that truly matters. And it's also indicative of the underlying things. So that's something you can communicate. And that's something people understand and they can behind, get behind it. And, and, and um, this is kind of like how, you, how we, in product management, how we get our stakeholders to love and accept uh, the data-driven decisions. When you have uh, when you have a very loud executive, it's really easy for them to overpower everybody in the room and say, "No, I want this to be done. This is right decision." Blah blah blah. But if you tell them, "Hey, you're doing this because you care about whatever one metric matters, your adoption from the previous example," and this is what is going to happen if if we do this. But this is going to happen if we do uh, something different, and it's going to drive up the adoption. It's really easy to communicate. It's really easy to demonstrate. Um, the the benefits or disadvantages of uh, one way doing one thing over another. I'm a firm believer in dashboards. It, it, I believe in at a glance, put you know a one page graphic in front of someone, and they should be able to immediately figure out what they need to know right now. Um, yes, of course, I would expect that they they glance over all of it and give all of it consideration, but you know the the highlights should all be right there. And so if you create a dashboard to summarize your information and it's 20 pages long, you've overdone it because they're, you know, who flips through to page 20? <laughs> so if you keep it all on one page, at a glance, all of your, you know, your primary metrics, of course, you're supporting data. You know, some people will want to see it, but most people really just want to be able to have a dashboard in which they can look at it and use that as a key decision-making tool. You know, I think a lot of people have just so much incoming information every day. And, you know, the details sometimes are, are too much. I, I completely agree. As, as, a, as a product manager who created and managed uh, probably about six or seven products in the last five years, uh, there were nothing but glorified dashboards. I, I completely agree with you. <laughs> I completely agree with that uh, because uh, yes, that's what that's what enables people who should be making decisions to make the right decisions. And and yes, there are ways to pre things up, but ultimately, um, yeah, nobody 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 looks at the second page of, of search results. Why why people would expect executives to look at the page twenty of, of a dashboard? I, I don't know. Well, I don't even think it's really a dashboard at that point. Right, <laughs> right. No, I mean I've seen I've seen I've seen and I've done dashboards that were twenty pages long. Uh, th there was a reason for it, and we we were asked for them, but I I still think it was too much. I, I and I agree. And this is one of the things that I agree with you, one hundred percent. Yeah, sometimes too much is too much. I will say it is kind of interesting working at NASA because most of my teams. Um, the first time they see a dashboard or a report, 
they're on an unusual bunch in which they will want to go through and check the math. Um, they want to understand where that information comes from, how it's devised. So most of my teammates will at some point go through the data and, you know, make sure that they can mentally process as far as where that information comes from. They really want to understand it. And very, very few exceptions to that in NASA. Um, they really don't buy into um, a dashboard and until they've seen the data at least once. After that, they're usually fine with it. But perhaps it's just because I work with so many brilliant minds and, and we're all very mathematically driven. So, you know, they, they kind of want to see, okay, where does that number come from? Um, they don't usually take anything at face value the first time. And what a gift that is that I work with people that really value the data and they value the math. They want to understand where where this information comes from so that they can best use it to make decisions. Right. And yes, and it makes perfect sense to me. Um, again, not always this doesn't always happen in the enterprise world or in the IT world. Sometimes you have when you have enough data, uh, those those cases. Uh, sometimes you just have to trust your data engineers that prepared that data and that they that, that built that. And it's kind of like one of the challenges in one of the products I'm managing. I was managing last year uh, where we show you the results and uh, we argue that hey, these results were produced by algorithms that were developed through you know blood, sweat, and tears of all our employees in the past 15 years. And they, when they want to see the math, we can't really show it to them because hey, it's not uh, it's not it's not really math. It's just you know specific algorithms and rules that we've come up with based on our our real world experience. But I I, I get what you're saying, and I, I would agree that uh, you know once you've proven that your approach is working, then you just look at the at the end result. So I, I I'm just curious, just just spend maybe a couple of more minutes on this. So, uh, uh, were there any cases or are there cases when you have to make a decision or you have to uh, uh, make people make a decision when there's not enough data? Because one of the things we've talked about before uh, in this on the show is uh, product managers got feeling. And it, it comes from understanding the business domain, understanding, being subject matter expert in certain fields, Understanding how things work um, in in market on the mar in the market in a specific vertical, uh, basically knowing you know having this situational awareness of things. Uh, so we've talked through this several times, and we've kind of agreed that gut feeling, product manager feeling, product manager gut feeling is a thing. Uh, my question to you is: Do you guys have cases when you don't have enough data, but you still need to have a decision? And how does that work? You know, NASA is set up in a way in which we have so many tools available to us, and we really can can find almost anything, um, whether it be from historical data and lessons learned, or from future projections. We really, we really have a lot of tools at our disposal in order to use in analytics in project management specifically um, to provide that data. Uh, I'd say that the hardest thing in this environment, in being in a research environment, especially from a scheduling perspective, is that you're building things that have never been built before, and you're doing things that are just so outlandishly crazy um, in terms of, of 
what we're building. Um, one of the products that I was, one of the projects that I was working on was to build a, a nuclear reactor that could power our future moon base or a trip to Mars. I mean, who would ever think in a million years that that would even be a thing that we'd have to think about from a time perspective? How long will it take to build it? What partners do we have? You know, we have the Department of Energy and we have NASA and we have, you know, all of these different stakeholders available, all of these different contributors available and, and some of the, the world's most brilliant, you know, nuclear physicists working on this project. How do you schedule um, the build of something that's never been built before, with materials that have never been built before, for a use that's never been built before. And a lot of these things depend on light bulb moments. You know, you're, you're talking about brilliant people and, and you're trying to schedule how long it will take for them to create the uncreatable. And that would probably be the greatest challenge that we have is, is at Glenn Research Center, a lot of the things that we're, we're doing have just never been done. Um, we're not quite sure how things are going to go because, you know, once they get up into a microgravity environment, you know, everything paves differently in outer space than it does on Earth. So despite all of the extensive testing and everything else, you know, it, it, how do you schedule that? How do you how do you schedule somebody's light bulb moment in which everything comes together? Um, a lot of times, you know, you, you think it comes together and then it goes into testing and come to find out there's some rework involved um, or some, some safety considerations that need to be worked out and revised. So it, it, you can't see those coming in advance in the same way that you would, say, if you were building a cell phone. Um, if you're building a cell phone, there's lots of other cell phones you know, it's probably going to behave pretty similarly. It's going to have a lot of, of similarities in the software, similarities in the hardware. In what we're building, we're building things that are just just so outlandish that they're not even going to be operating in an environment in which any of the scientists are familiar. So so that would probably be the hardest thing is that is that you can't see the rework coming and it's just, it's really a lot of trial and error. In full transparency, when you started down this uh, down this path, it started feeling a lot like product development. And just hear me out, um, not because you know, oh, you're doing some love things, no, but because of the approach and uh, and that's kind of like one of the reasons why product mindset took uh, took hold in IT because there was a lot of industry disruption. There was a lot of things built that weren't built before. And as a person who built things that never been built before uh, several times by now i can i can assure you i've been through <laughs> i've been through the pain of having to report a schedule of uh, building a thing that no one in the industry has built before ninety uh, percent of the company that i was working for even believes it could be built uh, imagine you're not building a nuclear reactor which is something we kind of have an idea how to do but building an anti-gravity device right i, I read a lot of science fiction so don't mind me um, Imagine doing that, and, and everybody knows it's impossible. Everybody tells you it's impossible. You're wasting your time, and and you have to come up against all these people, and not only tell them, oh yes, it's possible, but also tell them this is the schedule, and this is when we're going to deliver certain results. Yeah, so I I think I understand the pain, uh, but I still hear, <laughs> I still want to hear how you guys do that because I don't think I don't think I, you told me what the problem is, but how do you face this challenge? I I mean. How do you guys do that? You just eat the brownie one bite at a time. 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the way we all do it though? That's probably the same thing. That's probably the same thing that you do. You just break it down into manageable pieces and then as you gather more information, you break it down a little bit farther. And you break it down a little bit farther and you, you just eat it one bite at a time until you make your way through the whole pan. And and that's just kind of it's probably very similar to what you do. You start off in big chunks and as you get more information you you further, you know, break it down into into the next level of chunks. Um, I think the formal word for it is rolling wave planning. Um, but but that's just really all you can do. As you get more information, you revise your plan. Yeah, um, we're eating elephants here, but yes, <laughs> we're eating brownies. We're saying, how do you? Eat? One, one of the one of the re- recurring uh, thing is how do you eat an elephant you know, piece by piece? Same same thing, but not not the brownies. <laughs> I prefer brownies over elephants, I think. (laughs) Right. Um, Okay. So, obviously, the next question is, how does it feel when you actually make it happen? And I'm not deliberately not asking uh, specifically about the nuclear reactor or something like that. How does it feel um, for you? Um, It probably, I would imagine it would be different uh, because we, we, in product management, we're more... um, kind of more used to this feeling when, you know, you can't make anything happen. And we're, we're more used to saying, hey, you know what? It's not going to work. Uh, we're, we're, we're experimenting a lot and we're a lot more acceptable to, a lot more accepting to dropping an experiment that it's not working, okay? Uh, not going to happen. Let's find another way. Uh, how do you guys deal with the, with the consistent failure to achieve the goal? Like, uh, again, imagine we're, you're, you're doing the anti-gravity device and you've spent, uh, I don't know, a year, two years, three years, okay, it's not, not happening, you can't, doesn't work. Uh, or you spent two or three years and then, you know, the, the regular unscheduled uh, light bulb moment happened and you suddenly figure out how to do it. Uh, what, how do you, what, what happens at that, at that time? How do, you, how do you deal with systemic failure or rather not systemic, regular failure and um, that one time when everything starts checking out? You know, I'm, I'm not one of the scientists on the project, so I can only really speculate how they must feel about it, the incredible sense of pride. I'm, I'm just a numbers cruncher in the background. So, so I mean, of course, I'm, I'm just as excited when I hear about a launch. I'm, I'm thrilled to see which of our experiments were on it and what's going up into the space station. And then as things go, I'm excited to hear about what comes back. But one of the most prideful things about it for me is that is that several of our experiments are really applicable in a real world environment. For example, it's not a project that I'm on, but it's a project currently going on at Asifon Research Center. It is um, it's a an experiment about a fire extinguisher system on a very high level because this is not my field of expertise. Um, you know, the overhead fire extinguisher systems that we have in buildings in which, you know, it drops haywire out of the ceiling and the ceiling comes down and it extinguishes any fire that's in that room. Well, that wouldn't work in space because nothing goes down, right? So they're working on a new fire extinguishing system for the International Space Station so that in the unlikely event that there's a fire on board, they can put it out, 
well, my husband's a firefighter, so I get excited to share some of the data and some of the, some of the foundation level of the experiment. It's actually just recently launched and it's about to go into operation. Um, I get so excited to share that information back with my local fire department. We have another one um, called Flare, and they basically take... Um, materials that we already have and that are common, say, for example, Kevlar, which is used by the United States military all the time, and safety forces, of course, use Kevlar pretty often, um, and as well as some new materials that aren't currently um, available in the American marketplace quite yet. And they basically light it on fire, and they drop it down this huge drop tower, and the materials go so fast that it simulates an anti-gravity environment, and so they can kind of start to get a, a prediction for how these materials will burn in space. Um, in, a, in, in contrast, of course, they burn them in an Earth environment as well um, to have like, the full data set. So I'm able to go back to the fire department and say, hey, this is the coolest thing. They lit this on fire and dropped it today, and this is what happened. And you know, the, the the community as a whole, you know, my fire family community gets excited about it. And so just being able to talk about what we're doing and to find on-earth applications for some of the experiments that are going on, how can we use this, um, not just in space, but how can we use this information on the ground? Like, what has this told us about what's going on? I think that's probably where my source of pride comes from, um, as well as just hearing the the wonderment from the people around me in which, you know, with having such a huge research center in the backyard, you know, as a community, we all kind of talk about what's going on and, and uh, the fun things that are happening there and and we get to dream together. And so I think that's probably more where my source of pride comes from at this point than necessarily um, the way that the, the scientists themselves must feel about their experiments. I mean, I've seen people working for, gosh, one of my teams now has been working on a project for 11 years, and it's finally about to launch. Um, and so they're in kind of the 11th hour crunch, and they're working really hard, and they're doing amazing things. And so to see that source of pride and, and, and to have that, that pride in our community as a whole is just really, really cool. Thank you. Yeah, that it makes sense, and um, yeah, I I understand. I understand what you what, what you mean by this. Um, wow. Okay, <laughs> that's uh, pretty cool. Um, again, I, since I mentioned, I um, I watch a lot of science fiction. I just have to ask this, and I apologize if it sounds corny, but how far are we from from the anti gravity and and uh, fast fast travel to at least to the ends of solar system? Oh my goodness, I have no idea. Well, I appreciate that you're into science fiction. I have to admit that I'm not. Um, I have never, re all right, I'm going to tell you the truth. My mother-in-law is going to kill me. She is a huge fan of Star Wars, huge fan. Like her whole house is full of Star Wars memorabilia, like the shelves, everything, everything she owns is Star Wars. And I have never told her that somehow in my whole life, even now that I work at NASA, I've never seen it. <laughs> well, yesterday was May 4th. I know. I can't even begin to tell you how many jokes I got emailed to be about May the 4th be with you. And I mean, they were really cute, but I mean, I've never seen it. That is, that is very believable. And, um, 
I, I apologize for the reference. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm 100% sure you haven't seen it. Uh, there's this um, uh, military science fiction series. Uh, it was uh, running for 10, 15 years. Uh, Stargate is you one, and the, the the main character uh, is a is a you know, U.S. Air Force colonel. Um, he his point is he doesn't like science fiction. He likes Simpsons, but he hates science fiction. And and he goes through the Stargate to other galaxies, to other worlds, explores other planets, and he hates science fiction. That's kind of <laughs> kind of a thing. I mean, I, I kind of feel weird at this point in my life not having seen it. But that said, now I work in an environment where I live it every day. So it doesn't you know, when I, I'm worried, I would watch the movie and think it's not realistic or that, you know, it just, it, I live it every day. So it, it just probably wouldn't be that much fun for me. Why would I want to watch a movie about daydreaming about getting to other planets when I don't have to daydream and I work in an environment every day with people who are trying to get to other planets? Like, it's not a daydream where I work. It's just a reality. This is this is what the goals are. And so, I mean, of course, I understand it's different. But at the same time, I mean, when I daydream, I'm doing it at work with people who are trying to make it happen. So it's just... It's it's kind of fun the way I have it, and I don't want to ruin it. Oh yeah, definitely. No, no, I, I completely understand. And uh, believe me, I appreciate what you guys are doing, uh, making my childhood dreams come true. Uh, even if I don't get to go to space, at least I see people going to now far far space. Not uh, I don't mean uh, even uh, moon or Mars. I mean the whole solar system. Uh, and and I, I do appreciate it. I, I do uh, appreciate the work that you're doing, uh, bringing that a little closer. One one other one other question that I had, and I want to go back to uh, the the uh, pre- one of the previous things that you said. You said you said um, the, that you guys are working on uh, projects that collect a huge number of data. Uh, what what is the overall uh, sentiment uh, around the data. Uh, I, I remember you mentioned that data is your kind of like final product that belongs to one of since NASA is a public organization uh, and one of the main shareholder stakeholders. Sorry, um, that's who the data belongs to. Yes, most of the the data is is what I consider to be the final product. So once an experiment is launched and the information comes back down to earth and gets organized and final reports get written, that's considered the close of the project on my end and that's kind of the that's the product that we're looking for. That's the ultimate goal. And all of that information, well, not all of it, everything that doesn't have a national security interest is is the the property of the American people and, and most of the information and most of the experiments that we do, you know, that information is accessible to the American public and not a lot of people know that. It's, it's not, it's not my information. It's, it's the information of our country as a whole. So, um, you know, if there's an interest, a lot of a lot of times people will submit requests to get access to the information, and that's not just the common citizen, but also companies interested in the in the results of our research have access to that information. Um, we oftentimes partner up with other countries. I mean, a lot of people are familiar about the partnership with SpaceX and Blue Origin, um, especially now with our our human launch happening. That's very exciting with the partnership with SpaceX. So. Um, you know, 
any of our stakeholders have access to our information. And those stakeholders aren't always just simply financiers. Um, I think in product management, I always imagined it coming from a marketing perspective in which, you know, your stakeholders were, were of course, the people buying the product, but also the people financing the creation of the product. Whereas um, it's a little bit different in a research environment, in this research environment, because our stakeholders might be other companies that we're doing business with or other countries that we've partnered with or the American people as a whole, just your average citizen who's interested in the, in the results of what we did. Everyone has access to that information um, as long as, like I said, there's not a national security interest. Right. Well, that, that part is understandable. I mean, I would imagine uh, myself as an average American citizen interested in really cute wallpapers <laughs> from NASA website. <laughs> um, since you've, since you've mentioned, since you've mentioned, and, and uh, thank you for bringing this up, uh, since you've mentioned uh, uh, product management, uh, uh, just to clarify, it's not just marketing. Uh, the product management is actually responsible, the product management role or product management discipline is actually responsible for a full life cycle of a product that begins with ideation. Hey, we have this cool idea. Is there something to be had there? Then... You have experimentation, uh, prototyping activities where you try to build something that makes sense and try to build something that has merit that can be profitable and where value can be extracted from. And then you have a specific um, point in time when you make a decision, kind of go, no go decision. Do we are we building this or are we abandoning this? Is this uh, is this has does this has a potential? Then you move on into actual development of a product and then. You launch the product, and, and that's exactly when the, 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 the launch word is being used. You go to market with the product, and then you keep supporting the product. The product keeps evolving. Uh, one of the examples I keep bringing up about the product lifecycle or product as a whole is Microsoft Office. It's a, it's a family of products. Each, each product does something. I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Office. And um, each product does something, and if you... If you if you've seen it long enough, you've seen how it evolves. It certain things come in, certain things uh, are being deprecated, certain things are improving, but the product lives on, and 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 uh, the company that develops it or the team that develops it keeps their hands on that same product. Nobody's walking away from it once it's on the market. Uh, actually, the opposite happens. Once they launch the product on the on the market, and you start collecting the feedback from the market you start applying more effort to make the product better. Usually, since, since, since you're, you're doing the math uh, behind, uh, behind the, the cost risks uh, and schedules, uh, uh, what, what happens to the resource plan uh, after product is, is, is on the market, uh, what happens is the, the whole resource plan is reassessed. Now, having a feedback, having started receiving this continuous feedback from the market, we can now say, oh, hey, you know what? We have, we don't have enough people. We need to double our team. And that's usually what happens. You start seeing teams growing and, and uh, product being split into specific capabilities where individual team can work on a specific capability rather than on the whole product. Um, again, as an example, uh, let's look at the Microsoft Word. There's a spell checker. So spell checker is uh, as a capability that a whole separate team is working on outside of uh, Microsoft Word. 
So that that's how the split happens in, in software, like behind the scenes. Okay. And the only difference I see there between project with project management is that once our project closes, um, we can use that information obviously to to kind of be a building block for our next projects. It might that information might lead to a next project as opposed to an iteration. I mean, I have seen cases in which case there have been iterations or um, you know further developments with the data on the same project, um, kind of like a like an option. If things go well, then we'll do this next. Um, but for the most case, most of the time in the scientific community, the the results of one data set or one experiment will will end up leading to more experiments later down the down the road. Um, but that would be a new project. Correct. And 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 building up on my 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 own experience being a project manager in in IT world, it's very similar in the IT. So you have a project, you have uh, scope of a project, you have budget. Once it's over, it's done. Nobody comes back to the project. Project's closed. It will, may, and probably will lead to a different project uh, using the information uh, that was collected from this one. But it, just like you said, it's going to be a different project. And the reason why product mindset showed up uh, to the scene and kind of started to cover in the IT is because it's a very inefficient way to build software. Uh, project by project, it's a very inefficient way to build software because uh, there's a number of reasons. One of them is uh, you may lose financing for something, uh, for at least for a period of time. You lose financing for a period of time to continue developing the product uh, or, or an application or software application or something. And in that time, you need to make rapid changes, but nobody's available because, hey, we don't have developers, we don't have money to pay them. And things go south. Uh, with product mindset, where you have this uh, concept of continuous life cycle of a product, where work on the product doesn't stop. It's just another iteration, another iteration, another iteration, but the product lives on. Uh, that doesn't happen. There might be adjustments to the budgeting, there might be adjustments to the scope, might be adjustments uh, to the resources available, but the product lives on until it's it's deprecated, until it's no, no longer needed, until there's no longer value in the product. So on the user end, I would see that as being like when one of my apps gets an update and there's new features available or bug fixes and things like that. Correct, correct. Th- these these updates or bug fixes or, or new features are available because the product lives on. Once you stop financing, product effectively dies. People stop using it or number of issues with the product uh, uh, in- increases because, you know, operating systems uh, evolve, other things evolve, and you no longer can sustain, uh, you know, the product doesn't doesn't work anymore. Uh, I- I'm, I'm trying to come up with, uh, with a good example off the top of my head. I can't think of anything except Windows Phone, <laughs> so I apologize. But oh, it's a really good example. Well, how about like AOL? AOL was something that had lots and lots of iterations until its life cycle finally ended. Although I admit my mom still has an AOL email. I I think I still have it too somewhere, <laughs> but uh, it was it wasn't my first one. Uh, my first one was Yahoo, uh, but it, 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 they're still alive. They're just in in this hibernation mode when. Uh, where you still have certain things working, uh, Windows uh, Windows Phone is really good because uh, they stopped making them. They stopped making new versions of the software for the phone, and they stopped making the phones themselves. Uh, there's no more Windows Phones. You can't 
uh, unless it's something from uh, 2011, you can't really buy it anymore. There's no phones available. That that's why I, I brought this into the picture. Uh, they released it. They were building certain capabilities into it. They were supporting it for some time, and then they stopped. And then uh, you know your your regular apps stopped working one after another, after another, after another. Like I, I had my um, Windows Phone. It had really co- good camera. I I do uh, I have a hobby of photography, so I, I practice photography with phones, cameras, everything, and it had really good camera, and I used it. I used it a lot. And I started noticing that uh, Facebook's not working anymore on that phone. Instagram is not working anymore on that phone. So even if I took a picture, I now need to drag the phone back home, hook it up to the computer to download the images. Uh, things stopped working. And, and at some point, it was easier to use another phone than uh, to keep using this one because it became literally obsolete. So that, that's why I thought it would be a, a good example. Okay. And so that's, that's your life cycle. It was a very hot phone when it started. Everybody was interested. Everybody was buying it because it was like super duper camera on it. And then, you know, it, it was supported for some time and then eventually it died out. And uh, that's, that's, that's how you can think about the product lifecycle. So, yes, it's definitely different. But then again, um, in, in, uh, in, 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 the, in your world, maybe there would be a place for product, man- product approach. I don't want to say product management. Uh, mindset or product approach would probably be the better uh, terminology uh, of uh, how to iterate through different cycles of product life cycle. But it sounds like in, our, in its core, a lot of what we do is similar in terms of building a business case and, and keeping track of cost schedule and risk and things like that. It sounds like there's a lot of similarities between the two paths. Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, and uh, if if I had my co-host Irina on the on the on the on the phone, it's just not her house. She's she's in the in the Europe, so it's too late for her. Uh, she would she would actually disagree with me, and and that's why I love having her because we always disagree, and she puts a different perspective on things. She would say that inside every product, especially inside every enterprise product, there are different work streams that we treat as projects. So projects and products are literally. Go together every time, and and I, uh, I, I I I slightly disagree with that, but I want to make sure that I, I talk to that uh, point uh, since she's not here, and uh, I think it kind of like it's worth having that uh, point of view uh, voiced out because uh, in many cases when you start splitting work that needs to be done uh, to build a product. Uh, for budgeting, for scheduling purposes, it's easier to wrap it in the in the project uh, in, a, in a project form rather than in the product. Uh, there are not that many companies that completely abandon the project mentality when they're building software products and go full on with product mentality. Most enterprise companies still keep project mentality around. They just have them kind of like a, a queue or conveyor of projects. When one ends, the next one immediately begins. So there's no gap in coverage, in the financial coverage and resource coverage. It's just like one project after another after another. Okay. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. Makes total sense. Cool. You know, when you're talking about your, you know, business intelligence, a lot of the terminology that we're using is very, very similar. Seems like just the life cycle structure is, is a little bit different. All right. So we're almost at the hour. Uh, I wanted to ask if you have any questions for me. At one, this is one of the things that uh, we're, we're doing. Um, 
we're asking a couple of kind of standard questions. One is, how do you guys working from home? Are you working from home? How does the current pandemic affect you? And the other one is, uh, if you have any questions for me. So feel free to start with either one uh, that, that you like. Sure. I'll start with uh, I'll start with the pandemic. Yes, I'm working from home. I've been home now almost two months. I have been very impressed with how well NASA has done with moving all of us outside, offsite, coming up with a, a framework um, with some with some metrics that would establish at what level of kind of lockdown we were going to be um, subject to as this moved on. They, they were very, very early in the game. They were very, very transparent with, with how they were closing the centers and what decision-making, um, what data they were using in order to make their decisions and what we could expect as, as employees moving forward. So I was grateful for that. For the first week or two after we all moved home, it was a little bit chaotic. We all adapted to teams, which was new to many of us. Um, you know, as well as juggling just the the life that was happening. You know, many of us have families, children at home, and um, you know, a lot of a lot of my colleagues have both, you know, both parents working from home with toddlers underfoot. So you're sharing a living room with, you know, your spouse who's also on call and your toddler. And so, so phone calls got interesting there for a little bit, but everything seems to have really calmed down. I feel like as a whole, we've adapted very well. I, I find that, that work has gone on pretty seamlessly. Um, I don't see very much disruption in my day-to-day work responsibilities or routines. The only difference is that I don't have a commute anymore. Um, on a more personal note, you know, and I have two teenagers at home, and so they're able to do their remote learning um, somewhat independently. They don't need me hands-on the way that, that many of the people with young folks do. Um, as a family, though, you know, once the initial shock and all passed, we all kind of have, have really grown a lot closer. I've spent more time with my kids in the last month than I think I have in years. And so... Overall, I don't mind this one bit. I mean, of course, I'd rather nobody be, you know, sick or, or dying, and I'd rather not have this fearful thing out there in the world. But, but on a on a small scale in my own family, um, there's just been a lot of good that's come from this, and I feel like working from home has really given me the opportunity to to juggle my life and manage my life a lot better, um, so that I I don't have to be either at work or at home all the time. I have a little bit more flexibility to kind of go back and forth and, and prioritize my life accordingly. So I, I have no no negatives in the telework situation at all. I've really, really been grateful for it. Awesome. I know that's an unusual perspective. Most people just can't wait to, to go back to the office. I do miss the social aspect of it, but I feel like we're all using technology in a way that it's lended to that. Um, in fact, some of the other schedule analysts that I work with, we set up like a Wednesday night happy hour, you know, where we were kind of getting on a, a, you know, a call after hours, a video chat after hours and, you know, having a refreshing beverage together and just kind of socializing. And I don't think we ever did that before the telework situation. So I've gotten to know them a lot better and I've, I'm spending more time with with, you know, some of my more distant colleagues than I did before. So, um, 
I think we've all embraced it well, and, and I really enjoyed the, the relationship building that's come as a result of this. Um, I miss the socialization. I miss just seeing people smile. Um, but that's, that's uh, you know, we do our best with technology. It's just an unfortunate, you know, unfortunate side effect is that, is that we don't get to see each other's smiling faces very much anymore. I see. Or we do, but it's only via video, and I don't yeah, think that's yeah. really the thing. <laughs> nature of my work is I almost always work remotely and I've been working from home for the past uh, couple of years aside from uh, some time that I was on, a, on the assignment so for me it's a little bit more uh, I'm, I'm a little bit more used to this but I'm happy to hear that, um, that you find positive things in it I, I'm, I'm a big proponent of uh, working from wherever I'm a big proponent of working from home um, you know remote anything it doesn't matter as long as uh, the person gets things done uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to hear that you guys have it have it figured out and uh, hopefully the, even yeah there, I think overall we really are getting it done if anything I think we're getting more done now than we did before if, as strange as that sounds um, I feel like we're more productive as a group and we're accomplishing more at home than we really did in the office on, on a variety of different levels um, I, I I would be hesitant, you know, of course, if they called us back now, I would be hesitant just because of the safety situation. But I have to be honest that this has just been, you know, really a gift. And um, I, I couldn't imagine, oh, you know, that that this wouldn't be a more embraced lifestyle moving forward. I think I think that probably companies are going to find out that, hey, we really are getting stuff done and our costs have gone down a lot and our employees are a lot happier. So I couldn't imagine, you know, a world in which this didn't become just our new normal. I, I, I completely, this is another thing that I completely agree with you on. I think it's, it's, the, new, it's the new normal, working from home or working from wherever, uh, because you are more productive. You don't dread the commute. And uh, me being from New York City, believe me, I did dread the commute, even if I pretended I didn't. I, 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 I'm not enjoying it. I wasn't enjoying it. So uh, I, I do think we get things done. Um, we get more things done and we get things done better overall, uh, provided we can work from wherever we like. Uh, so that's great. Yeah, I'm sure the commute there is a lot different. I mean, where I live, um, it only takes me 23 minutes to get to work. So it's really not that big of a, it's not that big of a commute. It just, now that I know that we can do all of this remotely, it just seems wasteful. And so it's a waste of, you know, time, albeit it's not as much time as what you would be wasting. Um, and just a waste of resources, a waste of fuel and wear and tear on my car and everything else. Not to mention just time away. You know, right now, you know, my, my kids are teenagers, so they know when, when the office door is closed, mom's in a meeting and leave her be. Um, but they also know that in between meetings, I'll pop my head out and check on everybody and make sure everything's moving forward and going the way it's supposed to. So, um, you know, I, I just don't, I don't see very many negatives in it. I would probably feel differently if I had a baby at home or, um, if I was at home alone and didn't have a family, that would probably make me feel differently about it. Right. Or as, as I have recently learned, if you had way too many people working and you just don't have enough uh, privacy or enough space to, to take the calls and not being uh, disrupted 
uh, during those calls. Yeah, that's true. I'm really lucky that I have a home office and I have a door to close. So, and it's also separate from, you know, my otherwise living space. It's not in my bedroom. It's not in my dining room. So it's, it's one room where work is contained. And that's kind of my way of keeping my sanity. Otherwise, I think work just encroaches into your life and life encroaches into your work. And it's just kind of chaotic. Yep. Um, so having an office has been a huge advantage for me. Um, but, but overall, you know, even without that, I don't know if I'd ever want to go back. Yeah. Um, I guess we'll have to cross that bridge when we come to it. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, what, what was your commute like in New York city? So in New York city, it was about an hour on, uh, on the subway with one, uh, transfer, uh, which wasn't that bad. Uh, I mean, New York city, not bad, <laughs> You had to deal with uh, packed trains and the rush hour and all that. And and prior to that, I worked um, outside of the city. I, I lived in the city. I live in Brooklyn. Uh, I, I worked outside of the city and was hour and a change drive uh, in traffic back and forth. So it wasn't it wasn't as much the stress of driving. It was more of a stress of wasting a good hour hour and a half each way. Uh, hour and a half each way of your life where you can't really do anything at all. The only thing available was to listen to audiobooks and podcasts. That's really all that was there for me. And, and otherwise, it's the two, two, two and a half, three hours lost every day just driving. Yeah, that's so wasteful. Like, there's so many things you, you can probably do now that you weren't able to do before. Recreational things, you know, things that are good and healthy for you. Well, at least I have now I have time for podcasts. Well, there you go. I'd say the only struggle in my house is that my kids are constantly streaming, whether it be their schoolwork or YouTube or whatever it is they're doing, um, their video games. So there's never enough internet to go around. Yes. There's just never enough internet. Yes. So, and I, and from what I hear, that's like a, a countrywide problem. We're all dealing with that as we have you know, sometimes four devices going at the same time, streaming different things. And, yes. you know, on, for me, my work computer, I'm going into a VPN, but then I've got teams going and I got email going. And, yes. and so, you know, I'm constantly using, you know, internet as what, and the children are too, because they're doing their schoolwork. And of course my husband is too, because life happens. Um, so it's, that's probably been the biggest, the biggest struggle is just that there's not enough internet to go around. But I, I imagine our infrastructure will catch up with that eventually. And it's probably not as big of a problem in New York. It, it still, it still is a little bit. Uh, I mean, depending on which level of service you subscribe to. But it, it is a problem because I, I, it's, it's one of those commercial things where you oversell your capacity because no one is ever going to use it to full capacity. Like I purchased uh, shortly... Um, Last, last year, I think, um, I, I purchased the highest level possible um, on the Fios, Verizon Fios. It's a, almost a gigabit connection, and it still chokes up when uh, more than two people are, are streaming. And as a matter of fact, I, I have instituted this rule on my meetings. Whenever I'm in the meeting uh, and I'm presenting, I'm always, I, I give them five, seven minutes uh, to do the video sharing. And then I say, uh, I tell people, like, hey, not everybody has the fastest connection in the world. Uh, kill the video so we don't have interruptions in audio and presentation. So please, you know, shut off your camera. Uh, it would free up uh, people's bandwidth uh, to, to see other things. And it generally kind of worked. 
Now you can edit this out if you want, but how is the pandemic situation in the city? How is everybody holding up? What is what are conditions like right now? Um, well, there there are two camps in New York City specifically. Uh, two camps of people. One, one camp is very strict, and as soon as you pop your head out, they go hysterical, like stay home uh, with all the expletives in the world attached to it. Um, and the other uh, camp is um, there is no pandemic or we don't care. And I, I occasionally get out on supply runs or just for a walk because I can't you know, sit in the chair 24-7. And I see a lot of people going about their business like there is nothing. Uh, they walk kids, they walk dogs, they just, you know, taking a stroll, not wearing a mask, not ignoring um, six feet uh, separation. Uh, so they pretend that, you know, it's over. And, and that's basically what, what's happening in New York City. Well, I think that's probably what's happening everywhere. To be honest, that's exactly what's happening here. Um, you have two camps, those of us who are we're pretty strict and those of us who are just going on with life as though this hasn't happened and they're just like resentful that the bars are closed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, hopefully it will, it will be start, start being better soon. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm, 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 I'm very worried about people dying, especially in New York city. We're all here. We're all affected. Um, I know people who were affected. I know people who passed away, uh, because of the virus. Uh, but I also worry about, uh, if we prolong the strain on the economy, uh, we may not emerge back. We may not survive the way we were before. So coming back to, uh, they may not be coming back to work because there would be no work because the economy is going to, uh, start crumbling under stress. That, that's, that's my concern. Uh, I've been concerned about the economy as well, especially recently as food supplies have become you know, a bigger concern. You know, today in the news, they had Wendy's, you know, the fast food restaurant. Yep. Uh, 20% of them are closed because they can't get beef. Um, and I just never imagined a world in which that would ever even be possible, in which food supply would become a problem in the United States. I just never, I never even imagined that it was possible that I would go to the grocery store and not be able to get whatever I want. So that, it's a bit of a shock, you know, to the American public. I think it's probably a similar feeling to how we felt about 9-11 in which, you know, wars happen and bombings happen and terrible things happen to innocent people, but it doesn't happen here. And then all of a sudden it did. And so that's kind of the way I'm looking at the food supply right now. And I couldn't imagine what it's like to be in the city where you don't have access to, you know, grow your own or, you know, I live in a... I live in a city, but of course it's a much smaller city outside of Cleveland, but I have enough land that I have a, you know, a big garden and, you know, my husband hunts and, and so, you know, we have some of our own supplies and I couldn't imagine being in a world in which that wasn't even a possibility. Yeah. I mean, I, but I, uh, I'm I just never Soviet imagined Union. it all happened here. Coming from Soviet Union, I, uh, I did experience that and, um, uh, I don't want to scare anybody, but it starts looking very much like it. Uh, we had uh, we had pretty much all uh, stages of uh, you know just not having uh, food all the time, but it was possible to get it. Then not having food uh, and not being able to get it because there's the, no supply of food coming into the city. And at some point, we had um, uh, the uh, voucher system or card system where you had. 
uh, a card that allows you to get, you know, specific items specific number of times. So you can only purchase, I don't know, two pounds of meat per week, and that's it. That's your norm. Uh, kind of similar like uh, during World War II, people had in, in the occupied or, or um, in, the, in the cities uh, where supply of food was very limited, so they only were able to purchase or even get without purchasing. There's no the money or no money, you can't get it. Uh, and you can only you know use a specific allotment of uh, of stuff. Uh, I, again, I don't want to scare anybody, but uh, I really don't want this to start looking like it. What do you see as the greatest difference between product management and project management in terms of methodologies overall? I think um, I think it's the it's that difference that we've discussed. It's that difference between our project is having this finite. Uh, Timeline, uh, you start, you build, you finish, and a uh, product having a life, which is why we call it a life cycle. Yes, it, it, it's kind of, kind of like a human life, right? You, you, you're born, uh, you learn, you grow up, you get into your prime, uh, you plateau at some point, and then you start, uh, you know, uh, you're, you're, you start descending down, your, the products uh, become uh, outdated or, or, or obsolete. And eventually, the product's life is ended unless uh, you know you you come up with another uh, idea or another uh, capability of a product. But by then, it's probably it's probably a child now. <laughs> it's, it's another product. It's a it's a new product that was built on top of uh, the previous one. I think that's one of so it's, that's the image. it's very similar, very similar. I mean, obviously, projects have a life cycle too. But it sounds like the difference between a project and a product is that the product would be managed through its operations until it becomes obsolete, as opposed to a project, once it gets to operations, then it goes off to the operations people. It sounds like it would be like the project management methodology might have a, a more like a division between development and operations, whereas a product is development and operations. Correct. Development never stops. Yes, that's, yeah, I, yeah, you, you, you nailed it on the head, yes. The development of okay. doesn't stop until, uh, unless product is dead. There you go. Now I learned something new today, too. Glad I could help. Any, any other questions? Anything else I can, uh, I can answer? Nope, nope, I'm good. All right, then. Uh, so thank you very much for being on the podcast. Really enjoyed the conversation. Hopefully, we can do this again uh, with uh, slightly less technical issues that we had before. I would look forward to that. All right. Thank you very much, Erin Wood. Um, thank you. And uh, that's, uh, that's it. That's all there is for today. Thank you. Thank you. Talk to you soon. listening to the real world product management and I've been your host Vlad Grubman until the next time